I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mm. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm okay. Mm-hmm. This is our 60th podcast. Wow, wowie, wow, wow, wow. How do you feel about that? I feel fine, I guess. I mean, I, I have, I'm ambivalent. I'm detached. I'm riding high because we just watched that Netflix LGBTQ standout comedy celebration thing hosted by Billy Eichner and Bob the Drag Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some funny moments. There, but, yeah, there were. But I, I don't want to be negative, so I just want to highlight um, at the one hour mark, Patty Harrison does a bit. Mm-hmm. And she sings a song about in the style of Stevie Nicks about how she left her baby out in the sun and its head looked like a sweet potato. <laughs> Yes. That's one of the funniest things I've seen or heard in quite some time. <laughs> yeah, that was quite good. The, yeah. And then, of course, seeing Eddie Izzard is always fun. Eddie Izzard is good uh, in, in top form, yes. Yes. Uh, but moving on. So it's still Pride. There's still Pride festivities happening because L.A. has two Prides. Um, so this weekend was the Hollywood version, I guess. We didn't attend any. I think we just went downtown both weekends. <laughs> Yeah, like last night we went to, we met friends downtown and we went to Madonna Summer. Madonna Summer Night at a bar called Tent, mm-hmm. which was cute. It didn't, but didn't make it to the dance floor at sure all. Sure didn't, but I still had fun. Um, but I was going to rant about how some of these events are so expensive. Yeah. And I want to complain because, <sighs> well, because I always felt like, isn't the purpose of these Pride events? to foster community and outreach, right? Like offer education. Like I know for me, when I started going in the late 90s, that was how I knew where to get like STI testing done and like other resources. Um, Queer businesses would have booths, especially in the Twin Cities, Mm -hmm. like highlighting what they offer and allowing us to more easily support. And now it's just a party. So like... We were looking at some events and it was like $70, $80 just to enter like some festival that's just literally going to be like a parking lot party. Right. And, and then Christina Aguilera performed last night and those tickets were like $300. And then, you know, if you're going to buy the required drugs to make it through that mentally, um, it's very expensive. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. It feels very like elitist. Like we're going to create these events where only a certain type of people can afford to go when I think it should be about the young people. Like this should be for young people who maybe don't have money to be able to go and feel safe and see entertainment. Yeah, but uh, you know, as a community, we've kind of had a problem with that sense of elitism that there's all of that uh, hierarchy and posturing. I I don't Nothing like it. New. I don't like it. We're supposed to be a community of uh, uh what's the <laughs> My mind is going blank. About um, we have all this uh, fun. We don't have children. We should be able to spend. That, that's how people act. We should be able to spend money on whatever we want, kind of thing. Which is fine, I suppose. But I, yeah, when it comes to like Pride Month and all of these festivities and these super high prices for people to just stand in a spot to really loud music and dance with their shirts off, mm-hmm. that's great. That's fine. Do what you want to do. But to call it like. I mean, this is not about community. It's not about outreach. <laughs> no, not, yeah. Yeah, it's not fostering diversity. Oh, for sure, no. The no. crowds who are there are like, you know, if they can't afford to do these things, then, you know, it's 
Anyway, I don't want to keep going on about it. So I read, and I don't, I heard about this, and then I read the article, and I thought it was interesting. So, you know, Falcon Studios, mm -hmm. they make pornography. Mm -hmm. I'm not super into porn, and I don't know any of these actors or people, but they have a new head of production. His name is Nick Fit, and he used to be, or I think still is, a porn actor. Okay. He certainly looks like one. Uh, he posted something on Twitter saying, after hashtag pride, I firmly support protecting our queer spaces. I am in a role that can make a difference. No longer will I hire gay for pay entertainers to play the role of gay slash bi models. I heard you loud and clear this weekend. Gay models should be in gay roles. Hashtag gay for gay. Then... Shortly thereafter, he tweeted, All my personal opinions on this matter reflect my personal beliefs and core values and do not represent any position of any company that I work with or for. So clearly, I guess the CEO or whomever owns Falcon got his ass together mm -hmm. because that person said, No, we're going to continue hiring performers who perform well. Like, so then, like, you know, I don't really watch porn, but I think this also relates to, um, you know, traditional film and TV roles, like, how can we police people's sexuality? Like, how can you say, if this man, if, you know, if it's, like, male gay porn, how are you going to, like, certify that this person is not... <laughs> what, well, yeah, what, what else we're also policing is that that person is certifying that they're... that, that they are defining themselves as gay or queer. Right. And when it's none of your business, you're being hired to perform the service, and... Right, if I'm willing to do it and I do it well and people enjoy it... What difference does it make if it's, it's just, I'm, I'm dating someone of the opposite sex at home? Like, well, yes, but how, goes, how do we know they're not bi or fluid or whatever? Or, yeah, is there a ratio of penis they've had to have had in an orifice in order to qualify for the role? I, again, when you're, consume, and when you're consuming something like porn, how much are you invested in knowing about the actor performing those two? I, I don't. I don't think it's black and white. I think when it comes to roles that are not, you know, well, porn is like a performance, but I think like uh, Bradley Cooper is in a new movie with Matt Bomer where they're playing a gay couple. So then I was hearing people talk about that, like that he shouldn't be playing that role. And it's just like. Oh, please. It's called acting. And yeah, it's we, like. We don't require people. Again, I know that there's a problem with, you know, representation and uh, we do need to foster, uh, you know, careers and opportunities for people that are not white, cis, uh, straight actors. But that doesn't mean that those people shouldn't be allowed to act. <laughs> I think that the line gets murky when it comes to, like, race and ethnicity. So I certainly don't want, like, a, a white lady playing... An Asian lady. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? I And I don't know if I can even explain how I think that makes sense, except that it just feels like unnecessary. Yeah. Americans are so... It, then then Americans start, they need to start getting better at watching films with subtitles because you're letting actors play other nationalities and not speaking the language. What sense does that make? Right. And then I think like, okay, so then should... A person who's not a physician be playing a physician on TV or, I mean, 
that to me is even more damaging because this person's reciting like medical jargon, which people could interpret as medical advice and they are not qualified. They're just reading words that were given to them. So I, so I, I do think that in some areas where it seems gray, the, the line is pretty clear. Like doing blackface is yeah. not going to work. <laughs> like it's just not going to work because that seems like, but then even that gets tricky because then I was going to say when you have to alter like your physical appearance, but then, you know, we have, Look at like Zoe Saldana playing Nina Simone. Nina Simone and having to wear darker makeup and get prosthetics. And, you know, I felt a way about that, but I felt a way about that because it felt unnecessary. Like there are plenty of black female actors who could have embodied that role and not require what really felt like Halloween. So in that way, it just felt disrespectful because it also to, to me implied there was a lot built into that because mm -hmm. there's colorism and then there's like, okay, Zoe Saldana is arguably like a very beautiful woman. Yeah. So, and so then to make her look different to match what we see Nina Simone as to me also kind of feels like you're like, you're almost saying like she's not beautiful either because there are other female actors who could have played her and not require all that. Right. And I just feel like it, it sort of honors her beauty more than having to give some lady some nose that's bigger than what she naturally has mm -hmm. and make her skin darker and then put her in a fat suit. And mm -hmm. But then I understand in other roles, like fucking Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney, <laughs> it's like, well, we're not going to find someone who looks like Dick Cheney, probably, Who's gonna, you know what I mean? Like that director, that filmmaker wanted this character to look like the actual, the historical figure. So it's, it's not always black and white. It's not, it's not black and white. And that's, that's the thing. That's why we can't, policing these things doesn't really make any sense. And context matters. But, you know, I, I just thought it was interesting because when it comes to gay for pay, I feel like, like you said, the people who are consuming this medium, I don't think... You know, the audience probably likes the idea that the performer who's having sex, the, the male performer who's having sex with another man may not be gay. Like, and again, if that person's willing to do it and they're not, you know, I mean, I guess it could be problematic if we find out one of these gay for pay porn performers are like extremely homophobic and support that's a different, that's a different issue legislature but like but that is a different issue. So anyway, I just thought that was really interesting. And then I like how this person... It just seems like if you're the head of a company like this, why would you get on Twitter and make such a bold statement? And now you look stupid because clearly <laughs> someone got you together and now you're tweeting like, my views don't represent the views of the company I work for. Anyway, moving on. So we watched the first episode of Vanjie, 24 Hours of Love. Trash, trash. Oh my God. I really found it entertaining. Mm. But it's, well, because it's so ridiculous. The best parts, well, there's only one episode that we've seen so far, but it's 24 hours. It's supposed to take place over the course of 24 hours. And episode one was the first 60 minutes where he had to, uh, Vanjie, whose real name I think is Jose, yeah. had to eliminate one of the 18 guys who were in this rented mansion in Hollywood somewhere vying for his love. But the thing <laughs> I found most amusing in the first episode is you have like these 18 guys who are all very attractive for the most part coming into this fancy house and they are acting like they, cause they are, 
you know, the way it's edited, we're, the audience is made to believe that these people don't know whose affection they're vying for. Mm -hmm. So they're all assuming they're going to be dating each other. Mm -hmm. Like they know they're on a dating show and then you get into a room with a bunch of attractive gay guys, you assume you're going to interact with each other. And when fucking Vanjie comes downstairs out of drag, still looking like he's in drag, he was dressed like he, he, if he, Prince wore like it, something Missy Elliott would have picked if, out for him. If, if Prince had the affect <laughs> of Tyler Perry's Medea, is what he yes, is you, giving me. If you mix Tyler Perry's Medea with Prince, you would have Jose, mm -hmm. aka Miss Vanjie, walking down these stairs, being just as loud out of drag as he is in drag. And when I tell you the look on these guys' faces, they're trying to act excited. And I know, like, production and editing had to kind of splice some shit together to make it look like they were excited. Because if I didn't know that that's whose affection I was vying for, and I just spent an hour in a room with a bunch of good-looking guys who I thought I'd have the opportunity to get to know, mm -hmm. and then you tell me is this loudmouth cockatoo... <laughs> Who I think Vanjie's fine. I don't... Yeah, yeah, He's, yeah. like, good for, like, two minutes, but that voice is grating. Well, it's just, this is not the way to do anything. No, really. but for entertainment purposes, it's kind of funny. You know, I mean, it's trash, like you said, but I, I was surprised that I was so engaged for the 36 minutes that we watched because it's, it's just a train wreck. It's, it's also, you know, you get what you pay for. All of the people involved in this. And, I, and, and, and then there's no uh, attempt to even make it seem authentic. Like, clearly, these guys just want to be on TV. Mm -hmm. Half of them I recognize from, like, the apps. Oh, we saw one of them last night. And then we saw, yeah. Madonna saw, Summer. So, like, but even when they're talking in the episode, it's clear that they are not genuine. Some of them are not genuinely looking for love. They there's, just want exposure. There's that older, older. He's what, what he was in his forties. Black gentleman that has three little white babies at home. I thought he seemed authentic until we find out that he has recently um, become serious with someone. Yeah. So why would you even accept being on this show? They certainly aren't paying them. So it's like, what is happening? It's like you have you have these 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 little white angels at home looking at you. <laughs> Like you, you are not representing the what community. What are they going to think about sir? their black daddy out here? Uh, but anyway, okay. So RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars. We watched episode uh, four, no five. Mm. <laughs> episode five. We watched it at a friend's house with a group of people. The episode was called Draguation Speeches. So each of the queens had to give like a commencement speech. Mm -hmm. I thought they all did a fine job. Uh, yeah, actually, all the, it, I think Monet was the weakest, but not bad. Uh, it, mainly because something fell out of her hair. She was wearing a hair pick in her afro, and like right as she starts talking, the pick just falls right in front of her ass. And she didn't know how to... And she didn't know how to recover, except to just kind of ignore, ignore it. Ignore it. It's like, yeah, she should have made a joke of it. Yeah, like when Jinx's ear fell off. Well, yeah, the pig thing. Like, but she still... I, she was still fine. And some of the speeches were actually quite touching, mm -hmm. but the two top... Um, performers were jinx monsoon mm -hmm. not surprisingly she did a thing where she came out like she was going to give a commencement speech at like hogwarts mm -hmm. and then she's like oh wait i wrote my speech for the wrong school and then she starts reciting another speech that sounds like she's doing it for like i don't know 
some other franchise. Mm-hmm. And then she settles on, like, oh, drag you. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really smart. And then she recounts a story of how she was hit by a car in Amsterdam mm-hmm. and weaves that into her speech. I thought that was super funny. And then Raja was the other winner. And Raja did something where she came out acting like... A psychic. Like a psychic. And I thought she was just so funny. She was really And good. poised. And she looks so good. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly. I mean, she's I'm, a beautiful human, and then her makeup skills are phenomenal. I mean, she should have won, She should have already won a two, I think, but whatever. I agree. So, they lip-synced to Lizzo's Better in Color. Not a great song for lip-syncing. No. And then they were both... Jinx was dressed like... I can't even describe what she was wearing. And then Raja looked cute. Like It looked like this buckskin... Um, like... Her figure looked great. Like bathing suit that had long sleeves. And then she's wearing fishnet stockings with combat boots. Yeah, like Barbarella as Ethel Merman. And her <laughs> vibe did not match the song. And then Raja was moving a little more appropriately to the song. But then she had very little energy. Mm-hmm. So I was not impressed at all. But Jinx wins. So she gets the platinum plunger and blocks the Vivian. However, the gag for this episode was... You know, they each get a legendary legend star. But for this episode, each winner gets two of them. And they have to give the extra one to another mm-hmm. contestant. But then we're told we're not going to find out until next week. So, I, so I've so i actually... this I haven't been enjoying this season more than I have in quite some time. Like other seasons. Sure. I, it's just really fun to watch these. They're really all really professional. Mm-hmm. And their drag is top notch. And no one has been a train wreck in any of the challenges. No. So it's, and then the politics of these stupid stars is actually quite fun, mm-hmm. I think. All right, moving on. So you have several projects of interest, something called Dead Leaves. Oh, yeah. Um, Aki Karazmaki, I think uh, his first film uh, since The Other Side of Hope. He has a new project. Uh, it'll be part of. Uh, I guess the fourth chapter in what was previously known as the Proletariat Trilogy, uh, but it's going to star uh, Alma Poisty, who played Tova Jansson. Uh, I interviewed her for that film. Oh. Uh, a couple of, I guess, years, well, 2020. Uh, so that, you know, he's the the most notable contemporary Finnish auteur, uh, who I usually quite like. Next is something called Historia. Uh, the Georgian filmmaker uh, Dea... Dia, uh, God, I'm going to butcher her last name. Kulumbegishvili, uh, whose film Beginning was on my top 10 of last year, which was really good. Uh, she is uh, collecting funding for a new project called Historia about a female obstetrician uh, in a rural part of Georgia who performs illegal abortions. So that sounds uh, interesting. Next, The Book of Solutions. Uh, Michelle Gondry, who hasn't done a film since 2015, uh, has announced a new feature called The Book of Solutions. It's going to star Pierre Naini and Blanche Gardine, uh, who played Léa Seydoux's assistant in France. Uh, Together 99. Uh, Swedish filmmaker Lucas Moodyson, who in the early 2000s was, in late 90s, early 2000s, was a big deal Swedish filmmaker who did Show Me Love, um, which of course utilized a little lesbian uh, teen love story that utilized the Robin song. Uh, he also did this really grueling piece of miserableism. Robin about... S. No. Or Robin, the blonde. Blonde lady. Robin, Show Me Love. Oh, whenever I think Show Me Love, I think of Robin S. I know, but it's that. It's just white. how I only acknowledge Black Michelle Williams. But I do like Robin. Well, we like white yes. Swedish Robin. I do really like the white Swedish Robin. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, 
uh, he had a he was very notable for in like 2000 god early 2000s for Lilia Forever this about this girl that's sex trafficked um, his last film was a 2013 uh, movie called We Are the Best about this group of uh, teen girls that create a band uh, that is excellent uh, and he hasn't done anything for a decade now but he, so his new project is called Together 99 and it is a follow up to uh, I think his previous film called Together from the year 2000 about this commune uh, which I, I remember seeing that film and not loving it so I find it Interesting that that is kind of his new thing. But. Next, there's a Ben Affleck Nike drama. Yeah, uh, he, I think this came out yesterday. Jason Bateman and Viola Davis and a whole raft of other <clears throat> notables have signed on to this untitled project. Uh, it's all about the campaign to uh, sign Michael Jordan for Nike. Oh, wow. Next, Without Blood. Angelina Jolie is making another film called Without Blood. It's based on a notable book. I was going to make a, a nasty joke, but moving on. Oh. Running Wild. Uh, John Hillcoat, uh, Australian filmmaker who I've liked for quite a while, is uh, adapting a J.G. Ballard novel. Uh, love J.G. Ballard, of course, who wrote Crash, which Cronenberg made into a film that's very divisive. Uh, so I'm excited for that. And lastly, Blitz. Uh, Steve McQueen's new project, I think uh, it's filming this fall. I don't remember. Uh, about uh, Londoners during the Blitz. All right, so films released we didn't cover, something called Lost Illusions. I wish we had had time for this. I saw it in Venice, uh, and I read the book, it's based on by Nori de Balzac, uh, about this basically journalist. Uh, it it kind of has a lot to say about fake news today, but, uh, but uh, in this man who kind of has a rise and fall in uh, Paris, uh, and it also features Cecile de France, who I like a lot. I think it won a raft of Caesars. Next, The Walk. A film about a cop uh, that has to assist children in, uh, like, black kids being harassed in 1974 Boston. Uh, also released this week. I'm forgetting the name of the director, though. All right, so you only have one movie you watched for fun. And not even really for fun. Uh, it's still, it was a, a, screening from, a screener from Cannes called Butterfly Vision, uh, Ukrainian filmmaker... Uh, about this woman that's kidnapped, that's fighting on the front line. You know, this is before the the war started because they've had the whole uh, conflict uh, stemming from uh, 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. Uh, so I've seen several documentaries, uh, Reflection by Valentin Vestyanovich that was in Venice last year. Very much in those lines, this woman is kidnapped and uh, they do prisoner exchanges with the Russians all the time and she's brought back and she'd been raped and she's pregnant and kind of how her life is how women are further affected by uh, this, the, the horrors of war. All right. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there is an entry in the obituary section. Mm -hmm. Someone named Julie Cruz. Yeah, she, uh, I think her song called, is it called Falling? Uh, that was the basis for David Lynch's Twin Peaks theme. Okay. Well, she, I'm sure, she was 65. I'm sure she's missed. Uh, we don't have anything in the sorry to this man section, so that's good. Uh, all right, so the secret film, it was my turn to choose, but I had uh, failed to be inspired, uh, or I couldn't remember what I was supposed to watch, so you chose a film. You chose the 1976 British-American science fiction film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, mm -hmm. which is directed by Nicholas Rogue. Mm -hmm. A favorite of mine. 
Uh, what other films do I know from Nicholas Rowe? I know I made you watch Don't Look Now with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. I don't uh, remember that. Okay. The uh, Witches. Yes, he directed The Witches in 1990 with Angelica Houston. Uh, wait, wait, wait. I was thinking of The Witches of Eastwick. What's no. The Witches? With Angelica Houston as the Grand High Witch. Oh, and The Mice. Yes. Yes. Which was just that based on the Roald Dahl book, which is just yes, remade that's with right. Anne Hathaway. Um, what made you choose this movie? Well, I just read the book. You did? Yeah. When? Like last week. Oh, shit. I've been carrying it around. And then you have it on Criterion. Yeah, I have the Blu-ray on Criterion, which I believe is out of print now. So I can sell it? No, you're not. Wow. I have a. I keep track of everything I own, so you're not... I want everyone to know that when Nick dies, there'll be a huge sale. <laughs> An estate sale. It won't be some cheap shit. You need to have somebody price what everything's worth. I already told your goofy ass to make me a price list so I don't accidentally give no, away... No, because if I die, you need something to do. <laughs> oh. You know what I'll do? Be at peace. Relax. I'll get, a, I'll take, get some good sleep. Okay. okay. Um, I had never... I feel like I've heard of this movie, but um, I had never seen it. I did think it was interesting. Um, I do like David Bowie. He's really interesting. Like, he has a really interesting presence. Mm -hmm. And I find him, uh, like, strangely appealing. Yes. It's funny. He was only, like, 28 or 29 when he made this, which is interesting <laughs> but uh, well i was reading which we can get into later but um he he says that he was like coked out of his mind during this but his co-star uh is it candy clark who plays mary lou yeah she said in an interview years later that oh he had made a commitment to rogue that he would be clean as a whistle and he was and he was in tip-top shape but david Bowie himself said that he was like coked out oh and that he didn't know what he was doing. Well, because so. it's his first film, his first lead in a film. So he said that he just played the role like himself. Like that characterization we see is just him. Like he's just being himself. An alien. <laughs> and then that he very much related to feeling alien. Yeah. So, okay. but we can get more into that. So the basic story is, you can talk about how it's a TV show and you can talk about the difference of the book, but the basic story in the movie is that David Bowie plays a character who is called Thomas Jerome Newton. Mm -hmm. And he's an alien. And he's come down to Earth because the planet he's on is suffering from a drought. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to extract water from Earth to take back to his planet. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to build a, like, a, like a spacecraft to take it up there. And in order to do that, he needs a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. Like all the money. So he comes down with some um, technology that he has patented and it makes him like the Elon Musk of 1970-whatever. Mm -hmm. So he has all of this money, but he's elusive, which obviously draws unwanted attention to him. Well, because his body functioning in this environment doesn't work well either. He can't be... He can't drive in cars that are fast. He like breaks his legs literally in an elevator. He's, he's limited, yeah. So he kind of uh, he settles in New Mexico. His business is in Arizona, but for some reason he he wants to be close to where his where he landed. But his actual corporation's in Arizona, and he's holed up in this spot with this woman named Mary Lou, who in the book her name is Betty Joe, which I find. <laughs> And, um, you know, the government is sort of watching him because he is, 
you know, it is sort of suspicious that this person out of the blue just is like taking over all these businesses and making all of this money and is a recluse. So it's discovered that he's an alien and they discovered that he has built this spaceship and is probably going to do something nefarious. So right when he's about to launch, he gets taken and the government basically like contains him in this fancy apartment where they're just going to study him. But the problem is his, his character doesn't age mm -hmm. at the same rate we do. So the years go by and all, and this like sort of like government secret government group that's handling this alien entity, they all get old and then they just sort of forget about his ass. Mm -hmm. And like his, his ex lady, like everyone just kind of moves on because it's been so many decades, but he's still fresh and crisp and still has a bunch of money. So the end of the film is we just see him sort of stranded on earth with all of his money still giving up his endeavors to go home. Yeah. Um, still looking good. As in the book, he keeps saying that he's become native. Uh, and in the book, he also goes blind. Well, let's not let's. So that's the end of the film. So why don't you discuss some of the differences from the book and the movie? Well, the film is very disorienting and the it, it, kind of nonlinear as well. In the book, did you, so in the, he's, he, Nicholas Rogue also scrubbed any mention, specific mention of the passages of time because we don't really know how much time has passed. It's, no. It's shown in how people are aging around him. Right. So in the movie, we get the sense that Mary Lou, who's this woman he meets at the hotel he checks into, and then immediately she like shacks up with him. Who's a lush. Yeah, and she introduces him to alcohol, sex, and television, and he becomes addicted to alcohol and television, mm -hmm. which is how the government keeps him sedated in this apartment mm -hmm. <laughs> because they just give him gin. But she sort of alludes to the... She Did, did you say in the book that he's made to seem gay? She thinks... He, they do not have a sexual relationship in the book. She thinks he's homosexual because... He's so fragile and it's not interested in her sexually. And she's seen as more of like this drunk rube who's kind of maybe uh, kind of a, a bigger woman that is kind of gone to seed a bit. In the movie, the woman's beautiful and she sort of thinks it's weird that he's not more sexually aggressive with her. But then instead of making him seem gay, her character seems like she thinks it's because he's married to another woman. Mm -hmm. But then they do end up having a sexual relationship. Um, and then what about him going blind? In the book, he's questioned by the CIA, and then they release him to the FBI, and the FBI wants to do this imprint of his eyes, and he has those contacts in, and they don't allow him to take the contacts out, and they subject him to these bright rays that make him go blind. In the movie, they um, perform x-rays on his eyes with the contacts in, and then he says, you've burned the contacts to my eyes. So he can still see, but he can't remove So them. he's lost the last vestiges kind of that make of his old form because we of. do see him in his natural alien form yeah which is just like he has no ears no genitals and then his eyes clearly are, don't look like human eyes which is interesting because they show david bowie's actual genitals we see uh david bowie's penis and ripped horns ripped horns penis we see some vaginas some mm -hmm. uh adipose tissue in the titties yeah yeah uh yeah so here i have thoughts on what i wanted the film to be like but maybe i should go through my notes first okay all right. So the way David Bowie um, makes his millions is we see him go to a patent lawyer. Played by Buck Henry, who we just saw play the child, uh, the father of that kid in John Cassavetti's Gloria. Child, when we first see that lawyer, those glasses he has on, you have never seen. 
thicker glasses on someone. <laughs> it was so cute. But he tells the guy, he gives him like $10,000 or something and says, I want to pay you $1,000 an hour to be my lawyer. Mm -hmm. And the guy's like, um, I don't know what in the world you could need that you'd pay me $1,000 an hour. I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. And he's like, and I just do patent law. And he's like, well, I have some plans. I want you to read them like right now. Mm -hmm. So he takes a little 10,000 and he reads and if he, David Bowie's character gives him his plans in this really cool metal notebook. Mm -hmm. I think the visuals are really cool, but the lawyer is reading through them and it's all a bunch of like uh, mathematical equations and it doesn't look like anything a person could actually read. But the lawyer, some time passes and it looks like the lawyer had to roll up his sleeves and get into the weeds. And then we hear him say, you have like nine patents. Do you know what this means? And David Bowie's like, I don't know. He's like, you're basically going to take over like GE, Kodak. Kodak, all the things. And he's like, well, how much, like how much money can I make? And he's like, well, like 300 million. And then David Bowie's like, can't like, is that it? Is that it? Like, I, like I can't have more than that. And he's like, what in the world could you need like more than $300 million for? I'm trying to look up the, um, yeah, three hundred million in today's money. Oh wait, it's giving me. It's not even able to give me three hundred million. I don't know. It's definitely like in the billions. Sure. But um, so he proceeds with that plan. the The lawyer becomes like the CEO of his company, and he tells him, "You, I want you to be in charge of everything. I don't want to have to interact with a single person," and. The only person you report to is me. Like, I'm the top and then it's you. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they proceed in that way. Okay. So then David Bowie, after he sets up his business, he goes to New Mexico mm -hmm. with his driver and their limo. And they check into the hotel. And the girl, Mary Lou, takes his briefcase. And he's freaked out. Like, no, don't take my briefcase. So he chases her into the elevator. And I thought the scene in the elevator was really funny. Because he... The stress of, like, going up the yeah. elevator... It, the performance is it's campy yes yes it's campy but i, don't, I mean it was fun to watch uh candy clark plays mary lou and i don't think she's she's i i don't like her performance at all really. um i thought it was fun actually Le, well it's not good but i, I think it's I think, fun sh again it's campy because it's not good and you know nicholas rogue a favorite director uh, uh his um filmography to sift through but i think he always worked best when he wasn't uh, romantically involved with the women he cast in his films. Oh, he was romantically involved with With her? Candy Clark. Oh. And he uh, subsequently, you know, he was married to Teresa Russell after starting with Bad Timing and all of his films in the 80s and early 90s starred Teresa Russell and I don't think, I don't think he was good at directing women that he was sleeping with um, as opposed to somebody like Julie Christie in, in Don't Look Now. Um, and you know, back when I first met you, um, Sigourney Weaver was supposed to star in an adaptation of Night Train uh, from the novel by Martin Amis, and that never came to fruition. Mm. Somebody else made it, uh, Carol Morley, uh, starring Patricia Clarkson, which wasn't actually very good. But, yeah, I, you know, I think he worked well, yeah, when he didn't have the chance to do things. But Well, something I did that I didn't understand is the company, David Bowie's company, needs to hire like an engineer or mm -hmm. like a scientist because he needs 
like a fuel system to get his rocket ship to wherever the hell he's trying to go. Mm -hmm. So he hires this guy played by Rip Torn. Mm -hmm. And I was very confused. We, we spend a lot of time with Rip Torn being like a womanizer and having sex with women in sort of a lascivious way. With his students, because he's a professor. Right, that's right. And then we even get like, he's having, we have a, like a montage of sex scenes with him with two different young ladies. And both of them are like, you know, we see his penis and they're touching his penis. Like they're about to put it in their mouth. And they're like, oh, you're not at all like my father. And yeah. like, they're, and they're like running through his body, like all his little moles and wrinkles and the hairs on his nipples. Like, oh, my dad's a little different there. And I found that a little, I mean, obviously it's disturbing, but I, I don't understand what that has to do with that character at all. Because his character, once he realizes that David Bowie's character wants to fly out into outer space, he seems to have some morals and ethics. He's like, if I know that this is going to be used as a weapon, I'm not going to help you. And he seems like a very um, sort of integrous person. So I was a little confused, like what... See, I think that... What, what does that symbolize? That I, he's having sex with these students who are clearly being like molested by their fathers. Like, <laughs> I think that... Rogue, is that happening in the book? No, not okay. at all. The book's from the 60s. Uh, I don't think that... I, I think what Nick Rogue is trying to do is kind of like what um, Mary Lou is doing. is like drowning herself in vice. Like that that's his vice that he is using to distract himself to not really kind of examine his life and in, in what he's interested in. And I think that his um, relationship to Bowie's Newton uh, kind of wakes him up. I want to talk more about it, but let's keep going. When, when, Bowie is introduced to TV. Ultimately, he ends up getting a setup where he has seven TVs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's like him. He's, he becomes an, uh, enamored with and obsessed with television and you know the, the same sense of being lost in something so you aren't really uh, able to pursue your dreams or your goals. Um, Mary Lou is frustrated with him because he's not trying to interact with her in the way that a man would want to interact with a woman. So at a point, she's like, well, we need to go to church. And he's like, well, I'm not going to church. But he does. Mm -hmm. And the scene where they're in the church, I thought was funny because you have him. Because he looked, we didn't describe how he looks. He is real thin. Yeah. You said that the wardrobe department had to dress him in like boys clothes. Yes. He's so tiny. Oh, and also of interest, um, the woman who designed his suit, Ola Hudson, is the mother of Slash from Guns N' Roses. Yes. So... I, so he's super slim. When we first meet him, he's dressed kind of like disheveled. But once he has money, he's wearing like designer, mm -hmm. like high-end shit. He looks very chic, mm -hmm. very fashion. Um, and then he's very pale. And one of his, the pupils are of different sizes on his eyes. And different color, and his eyes are yeah. different colors. And he, um, he has very pale skin. He has a full face of makeup. He's wearing eyeliner, lip color. Mm -hmm. And then his hair is colored this like putrid copper color. It's but very then, Tilda Swinton. Yes. And then, but the front, he has like, you know, like his hair is, you know, moderately long for a gentleman. And then, so it's like this awful copper color. And then the front of his hair, like where he parts it, there's like two like blonde streaks. Mm -hmm. So that's how he looks. But so you see him like that in church and then you hear the priest or the reverend or whatever, like say, okay, it's time to sing a hymn. 
And watching him like mouth the words, I thought that was funny. While she's like staring at him, but again, how religion is used—that she—that's it's an escape. It's it's a way to it's an opiate. I think is the point is how Mary Lou uses it. Okay, I feel as well. So then, Doc um, Rip Torn's character, whose name I think is Doctor Bryce, Nathan Bryce. Yeah. yeah, he is in cahoots, or he suspects that there's something off. He know it's like he knows he's an alien. So then he sets up these hidden cameras in Bowie's space mm -hmm. that are meant to take X-rays. Mm -hmm. And then when we see the X-rays, <laughs> it looks crazy because mm -hmm. it basically looks like. There's a human body sitting in a chair with no internal organs, mm -hmm. and that's how he knows that um, Bowie's an alien. I thought Mary Lou was pretty. She reminded me of someone, and I still can't think of who, but her hair game was appropriate, I guess, for the 70s, but there's one point where she's wearing a wig. Yeah, which she throws off at him. That yeah. she actually takes off and throws that I thought was super funny because when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, it's bad. And then it, and then it was made so perfect because she takes the shit off and throws it <laughs> Um there are a lot of really campy moments. There's a point where Mary Lou is arguing with Bowie about something. And she like rips at him. Uh, the Criterion disc has some behind the scenes footage that we probably should have watched. Because I'm sure there's a lot of interesting mm -hmm. stuff. But there's a moment where she's like clawing at him. And you see her rip off his shirt. And then it looks like she actually scratched him. Mm -hmm. And then... And, she, we, and then she takes some cookies out. Well, of before oven. that, before she takes the cookies out, Bowie is looking down. And I feel like if he, she wasn't supposed to scratch his ass, and she did. And you can see him look down towards her, and then he looks at his shoulder like, this bitch scratched me for real. And then she brings out some cookies because the alarm goes off the timer. And she brings this cookie sheet over with these old dry-ass, burnt-ass cookies. And then we get a shot of Bowie, like, flipping the cookie mm -hmm. sheet. That shit was funny as hell mm -hmm. to me. There is a scene where Bowie, he's telling, he, he's had enough of Mary Lou. And she's not getting the hint, like, you need to kick rocks. So then we get a scene of him going into the bathroom. And he takes his clothes off. Mm -hmm. And he's playing with his nipples. And then he's looking in the mirror but the view in the mirror is distorted like a funhouse mirror. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really cool scene. And then he takes out his contacts because he's going to reveal to her his true form. And child, when we see Mary Lou see him as his alien self, oh my God. You know how like the Alamo Draft House will play fun clips? Yeah. I feel like her seeing him as an alien should be a clip that the Alamo oh, Draft yeah, House uses. Oh yeah, and she urinates. Yeah. Oh my God, it was so ridiculous. You know, that when it was... Released in the U.S., they cut uh, the distributor cut twenty minutes of it. Oh, uh, and that was one of the scenes they cut. Oh, interesting. And then part of that scene where she's seeing him uh, as an alien, she pees on herself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then goes and gets, takes off her clothes and explores his body naked on the bed. And then is still freaked out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do get visuals of Bowie with his family. I'm assuming it's a woman, so a wife, and then his two kids. Who I believe is also played by uh, Candy Clark. Oh, so we see them on like their planet. And this desert planet where... It's real dry. They they have these contraptions that have water in them. It reminded me of Dune, really. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's what those suits do in Dune. But when we see his kids close up, those kids are so ugly. Yeah. <laughs> but not because of the actual children. They're wearing like masks. Yeah. And they, the one almost looks like he's wearing like a Michael Myers mask. I thought one kind of looked like Willow Pill. Oh. Wow. Let, no? Let, 
Let's move on. Okay. Then the character of Farnsworth, who is... Buck the, Henry. The, the patent lawyer. The, the, the lawyer who's now the CEO of this enormous corporation, conglomerate. He has a driver who's also like his boyfriend. Yes. So this character's gay. In the book, is that the case? No. Nope, no. Nope. Okay. So it's interesting. Um, but once the government decides like they are going to eradicate... This is sort of the end of the film... They go, this like agency, oh, which we didn't even mention. Bernie um, Casey. Ernie Casey. Bernie Casey. Bernie, sorry. He's one of the people, which we can talk about him. Yeah, his, his uh, I was very confused by his character because if he works for the government for the secret agency, he lives a very extravagant lifestyle. He has a mansion. He has this like white lady with these white children and, well, they're not white. One of them is brown and one's For sure, white. yeah. But, um, yeah, I was confused like who... What kind of money is he getting paid? Well, I think that's interesting because he before they kill Buck Henry, they you know were told that they're going to take care of this this alien man, uh, in who runs this uh, this big company. He said that is technologically overstimulated. Mm. But what I was going to say is when they get a hold of Farnsworth and his boyfriend, they throw them out of like their penthouse window, mm-hmm. which is like in a high rise. And the visual of these, which are obviously like mannequins or dummies, falling from the sky was really funny. It looks really good because the transitions to Bernie Casey jumping into his pool, diving into his pool, which oh, looked really yeah. great. And I love how the soundtrack is because he gets out of the pool and hugs his, and he's naked, and he hugs his wife and you hear his heart beating. And I was trying to think that the casting of uh, a black actor in this role that's you know, is partially responsible for the downfall of this other stranger in a strange land, that this black man in America working for this agency. Sure. I'm sure also has some kind of um, subtext. Sure. With what Rogue is trying to say about the U.S. Um, my final note is when we see the aliens, like, walking, they kind of walk like the Coneheads. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But overall, I guess I don't know. There's a lot... I, I think the book would be an interesting read, but what I wanted to talk about is what I think would have been better. Like, this movie could be remade with a different title so people don't know. And I think what would have been more interesting is if the David Bowie character, we don't know that he's, like, from an alien planet. We just see this guy who has these great ideas and he's, like, a whiz at business and all of a sudden is, like, super rich from his innovations. Like if Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged's they ended up being an alien, the guy that creates the steel and that. Yes, because I think it, it takes away knowing that he's an alien, like right away. So then it's like, okay, clearly he needs money. Because the first thing we see him do, the first scene of the film is him landing and like walking down to this little town, that, the name of which I just forgot. And he pawns like a gold ring mm-hmm. with his initials in it for $20. And then we see him go like buy something to eat. And then he has like a bunch of those rings. So it's clear that he's interested in getting money. Mm-hmm. And then immediately we cut to him and the patent lawyer and the 300 million and then the successful corporation. So I, I, I think knowing that it already led me to like, okay, well, what is he trying to buy? So I wish that we would have just seen this character. And then he tries to get one of those rings to Mary Lou later on. Mm. Like as a goodbye thing. I wish we would have not like we would have seen this person build this sort of um, empire, and then we see that he's trying to go to outer space, but we don't know why. And then, 
Because ultimately it doesn't matter why he's going. It's just the fact that he is an alien yeah. <laughs> trying to get back home. And then there's so much that could be... I mean, there's a lot of symbolism in this existing film, but I think it's a little all over the place for me. It just... Well, it's very, you know, it feels like an art house film. It's very disjointed and uh, disorienting. But I also kind of like that. I like how the passage of time is presented. Um, but I would watch it again, like at a theater, like um, as. And I think Rip Torn's old boss says something about. There's some comment about how uh, people aren't ready for new products, uh, a, a multitude of new products at any given time, which is commentary, even by the 70s standards, was really not true. Right. As we, we demand more and more and more. And yeah, it, it does feel kind of like strangely prescient in uh, echoes of Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And, and, you know, there is a new television series starring Chiwetel Ejiofor, who, which I believe is supposedly like a sequel oh. series. Uh but I haven't seen that yet. Uh, th there are things that I didn't get that I haven't really had time to think through on like this rewatch. Like, because um, Mary Lou ends up with uh, Rip Torn's Nathan Bryce, which does also happen in the book. Uh, but there's... Oh, that's right. Yeah, David Bowie's character's like, ex-lady ends up with the, the engineer, the yeah. doctor. Yeah. And, and still drinking just as much as she wants. But there is an interesting... Um, parallel made with Hitchcock's The Paradine Case, okay. where it's, he's watching it, and then she, her dialogue is mimicking that of like Alita Valley and Gregory Peck in that Hitchcock film, which is about a lawyer falling in love with the woman he's defending. The, and I haven't seen that for a while, but she may or may not be guilty. And I don't know exactly how that fits in as a reference, but uh, it's interesting. I, you know, anytime watching Alita Valley. Uh, but and then, of course, the end of the film is Rip Torn discovers that the the visitor cut this record called The Visitor that he picks up in a record store and listens to, and it's it's supposedly in his alien language. And he goes and asks, like, what, what it's all about. And he's like, well, it's a letter to my wife that if it ever gets played on FM radio, she'll she, be might, a, hear she might hear it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it... I w if it were remade, I would love for it to have a more somber tone. Like, because really what's happening, I think in this film, what's happening to David Bowie's character is overshadowed by his, like, like his great success and then him sort of being like a recluse that's kind of weird. But really, it's actually quite depressing. It is Like, depressing. this man left his family to try to save them. And then he's here enduring all this. And we don't know the passage of time, like what that looks like for his family back home. Like, he's been here for years and years and years, and they're just out there all dry and thirsty. And it's like, and then he seems sad. He's very delicate. So I, I kind of wish that that would have been the focus more. And does Mary Lou say something like, you, by the, how long is it going to take to get back there? They're probably dead. Yeah, and then thinking about the record he caught and, like, how he just wants his wife to know what happened is actually really sad. It is, and, you know, him just kind of falling into a drunken stupor uh, and, and being okay with his kind of fate. fake. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of a line from Tennessee Williams, the fugitive kind where it's like America used to be great, but now it's just drunk. Oh, well, uh, but yes, the, so this was the first, uh, screenplay from Paul Maersberg, uh, who went on to write a lot of things, but worked again with rogue and notably wrote, uh, the screenplay for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, uh, which was where, 
David Bowie plays a prisoner of war in a Nagisa Oshima film uh, that's also on Criterion, definitely worth watching. Uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I am a fan of this film. It's not my favorite Nicholas Rogue film, but uh, it's certainly a, kind of a cult oddity. Um, again, I would recommend, like, I would recommend it because it is, you know... It looks great, you know, shot by uh, Graham Clifford, Graham Cliff, or edited by Graham Clifford, who also edited Don't Look Now, um, and I think, was it Rocky Horror Picture Show? Uh, and same cinematographer as that film, Anthony B. Richmond. I mean, it just, it, yeah, it's fantastic to look at. All right, so uh, what do we have this week? Um, uh, there's a lot going on, I think. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there, okay. there's a bunch of stuff to watch. All right. Um, I did read uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Oh, we're watching that this week. By Paul Gallico. I think that's actually next week. Oh, are we going to the Soho House? No, we'll have to talk about that. Oh. Uh, Tomorrow is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. That's a cartoon. With with Jenny Slate. But that looked funny when I read about it. Yeah, I think that'll be entertaining. Uh, And Isabella Rossellini. Uh, There's several other things going on, but I can't remember... As I said, we already saw Lightyear. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a busy week. But anyway, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, I got emotional reading it, so I can oh. only imagine. And uh, I hope to watch the original television version with Angela Lansbury, which I believe is on YouTube. Oh, all right. Well, do you have anything else for us? Uh, I started reading the Uncollected Essays of Elizabeth Hardwick, which was uh, put out by uh, the New York Review of Books, uh, which of course uh, signifies that there is a collected essays of Elizabeth Hardwick, uh, this essayist who is very uh, smart, uh, and I'm enjoying that immensely. I'm about to come up on uh, a segment she wrote on Faye Dunaway, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, do you have anything else? No. Okay, I was going to leave you with a quote since for Pride uh, from James Baldwin. Go ahead. There are too many things we do not wish to know about ourselves. People are not, for example, terribly anxious to be equal. Equal, after all, to what and to whom. But they love the idea of being superior. Boom. (laughs) Boom. 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 Bye. Bye.